an epic matchup between your two favorite teams, and you're at the game getting the most from what it means to be here with American Express. You breeze through the card member entrance, stop by the lounge. Now it's almost tip-off, and everyone's already on their feet. This is going to be good. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your live sports experience at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Eligible American Express card required. Benefits vary by card and by venue. Terms apply. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie. And we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews. But now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Welcome to the Nerds Podcast number 804. Uh, I do want to uh, also remind people that speaking of comedy specials, Fun Comfortable is uh, only going to be at the posting of this episode uh, you have one more day that Fun Comfortable is uh, – the 50-minute version is free. The one that aired on TV is free, uncensored, as a Nerdist podcast. And then we have to take it down per our agreement with Comedy Central. But uh, it's available on iTunes and uh, Google Play and um, Amazon. So and get all the versions. Sony. Just yeah, yeah. but there's a deluxe version on iTunes that has the um, – there's a Q&A afterwards and it's an hour 15. So, uh, yeah, and if you like the podcast, go by because it's, uh, it's helpful. And if not, eh, no worries. Thanks, thanks for listening. What do you got in the Community Corp? I got two things right here. The podcast, The Film Fault, which is hosted by Bald Brian, who from the Adam Carolla Show, and Anderson, who from The Late Love Line, which feels weird saying that. It is weird. Uh, I hate I hate after 10 o'clock and it's not on. I just don't like it. Uh, they're doing a live show on May 22nd at the TCL Chinese Theater in Hollywood. They'll be doing Flick Fessions, their top five list for the episode, and they're going to have exclusive giveaways and special guests. You can find tickets at filmvaultlive.weebly.com. Dot com and if if you buy your tickets before May thirteenth, you get five dollars off. And then also, two of my friends from high school, Aaron and Serge, started their own furniture company called Sons of Salvage up in the Bay Area. Uh, they create custom and amazing looking furniture, wall hangings, and more from reclaimed wood, and they do it all from hand. So they just opened up their shop in Petaluma. It's in the North Bay. So if you live in the Bay Area and you need some really cool looking handmade furniture, go check it out. You can find more info at facebook.com slash Sons of Salvage. Excellent. Thank you, Katie Levine. Now, this podcast is very special, Katie Levine. Uh, This is Jodie Foster. I have not seen a lot of long-form chats with Jodie Foster. I had no idea what to expect. And from the second I sat down, I'm telling you, and I I will say this on record, this conversation with Jodie Foster is one of my top five favorite podcast experiences. And I'm not – I don't want to raise expectations. <laughs> so don't – you know, like whatever. But honestly, um, she was legitimately incredible. She was amazing. She was so nice and so open and so smart. Oh, my gosh. She's well, she's – I mean, it's the smart's a given. I just didn't yeah. know if she was going to want to talk about anything. And, and And honestly, one of my top five favorite podcast experiences – of all time, and uh, I, I, I hope you enjoyed as much as I enjoyed chatting with her. Uh, she's promoting Money Monster, which is uh, with, with George Clooney and uh, Julia Roberts. It's it's in theaters this Friday, May thirteenth. Mm-hmm. So you should go see it because you support Jodie Foster because she's fucking awesome and everything she does <laughs> is amazing. <laughs> I swear to God, I'm gonna. I, I feel like we're friends now. 
Maybe not. Maybe I've even no, created guys, that in my head, but I you felt guys, like hit it off. Like even I feel like, like we really hit it off in such an amazing way. Like, like you guys both had to leave, and you're both just like, no, we want to continue talking it was, together. Yeah. So anyway, uh, I'm very excited to present this podcast. So I'm gonna not keep yammering at the top like I normally do. You know, you, as you start to get older, folks, you just talk more. And now I explain for ten minutes <laughs> why people talk more when they get older. Listeners, podcast episode number eight zero four. With Jodie Foster. Oh, and, and I do have to make one disclaimer because uh, a lot of people are going to be upset. Because sometimes when you have people on and they go, why didn't you ask about X? Mm-hmm. I did not bring up contact, which Ugh. hurts my stomach. When I left, I was like, I forgot to talk about contact because it is uh, it's a movie that I love. It's and one it's one of a movie, my all time favorite. And it's a movie that stays <laughs> with you and it's a movie I still think about. And, you know, and it, it came out a year after Carl Sagan passed away. Yeah. And, it, and it, it's... And I really wanted to ask her, like, do you have a Carl Sagan story? And But we just – the conversation just flowed so nicely that I just didn't – I was so enthralled by her that I just didn't get to the contact question. Yeah. So I apologize. You we'll don't need, to, like, you don't need to tweet. We have to have her back. Have Jody Foster, please come back contact. on the podcast so I can ask you, uh, did you have fun working on contact? I watched it the day after she did this podcast just because she was so great. And that's like one of my all-time It still holds up. The movie holds up. Watch it. So here's Jody Foster on the podcast number 804. Katie, please roll the thing. Now entering Nerdist.com. I feel like my entire adult life has been to try to recreate my adolescent <laughs> bedroom. That is essentially what everything is. I think it's kind of funny that our generation has kind of had this ability to have our extended adolescent period. And I feel like our parents, like, they had to be adults at a yeah. certain age. But this is this is okay now. This is totally okay. It's good. It's really good. Do you have a chill room? Is there, like, sort of a... Like a room that you sort of made up with a lot of stuff that you like? No, I'm a I'm a lie in my bed and stare at the ceiling person. <laughs> and I don't I don't collect anything and I don't want I don't want anything. I'm one of those I like to get rid of everything. Yeah. I would be happy the happiest I am is when I'm in an Oakwood hotel. Really? Yeah. It's just as bare bones as possible. Yeah, and nothing creative about it or nothing that I have to think about or, you know, polish or yeah, that would make me happy. I mean, I have a really nice house. Not that I don't. It'd be really funny if it's like you should just rent at the Oakwood apartments. Like, yeah, Jodie Foster's at the Oakwood. Nothing makes me happier. <laughs> Is that does that have to do with? Did you grow up like in the Oakwoods? No, I. But I grew up going on location. And that's that's what that yeah, reminds you I of. I think so. Yeah, it's that, that sort of rental furniture and. Like all I have to think about is is my work. I don't have to think about anyone else. I don't have to worry about them. I don't have to feed them. <laughs> I just can be in my little, you know, queen size bed with the IKEA stuff. So then you must get stressed because when you're a performer, people send you things. Yes. You must get stuff and baskets and shit all the time. You're like, this is stressful. Why are you saying it? What do I do with this? When I had a company, um, I feel like we spent at least 60% of the time at the company dealing with things people gave us and things we had to give them back in return in order to thank them for the things that they gave us. <laughs> and I was just like, I, I feel like I employed people full time that did nothing but, you know, gift receiving and thanking and, you know, 
It's like vicious, terrible, vicious cycle. It's ter- there is an economy of thanking. I want to thank you for your thanks. Here is a basket to thank you for that. Well, take these muffins. I did. I um, but then I because Christmas was crazy. You know how it is in America with Christmas. Oh yeah. It's not. Other places don't believe that. They don't believe in you know you give uh, you give gifts to your you know people who work for you or whatever your you know your friends or I mean people in Europe are like. You do what? <laughs> they have they have no idea what it's like. And um, I I did a movie. I did a movie that was over Christmas, and I was freaking out. And finally, I said I sent. I made a poem. You know, I made a poem about why nobody was going to get any Christmas presents. And I, you know, did it nicely with good paper and stuff. And um, and then it just became a tradition of coming up with new creative creative things that you make by hand that are about why no one's going to get any presents <laughs> <laughs> and um I just yeah it became a tradition every year we come up with something new that's really funny I mean is there any kind of is everyone pretty good natured about it they're like well they stop giving you gifts <laughs> well of course they, they really do I mean it took it took like a number of years because people were like oh she's just kidding right and then eventually they're like oh no she's not getting us anything so I'm not getting her anything <laughs> and we all you know people just sort of agreed and it started with just my friends but then it kind of extended to the work and people are relieved they're just so relieved to not have to to not have stuff yeah and the poem was always or the song sometimes it was songs and depending on the year like if it was the Katrina year you know we, it would be uh, like a blues uh, a blues song mm-hmm. um, that was about why you're not getting a present <laughs> <laughs> and and it was you know it, it took some creativity. It's not like I put no thought into it, right? And and um and then it would be you know it would you you know it, then it sort of morphed into we're not going to get you anything, but we're going to send you something that sort of has to do with the theme, and the theme was Katrina, right? So and it was a blues poem, so we're going to send you chicory coffee. Oh, no, like it we we kind of went to that route, and then it started all over again. It's it starts it, well, and we had to stop it again. <laughs> Because then people like, wait a minute, she got me coffee. Now I need to get her something. Does that count? No, please, just keep the don't please. I mean, and and it starts earlier and earlier. Like yeah, like you start seeing Christmas decorations like right after Halloween. That's right. This is like the buying season, and you really do. You start looking at people in hierarchies and like, okay, these are the hundred dollar group. This is the two fifty group, and this is the, these people yeah. are the inner circle. So I got to go all out. Oh yeah, and I'm all you know computerized about it all. Everybody has lists, and you know. Categories and so you're super organized. Yeah, but I'm I'm not kidding about the no present thing because it's oppre- <laughs> it's oppressive. It's oppressive to have your entire month of December, which should be about you know you know decorating a tree or doing all that kind of stuff, doing nothing but going like ah, I gotta go to you know Macy's again. I can't, I can't get another? You can't do it. I can't do it. You can't do it. Uh, do you like you? So you don't like shopping either? No, not at all. No, I like shopping for stationery and for. Um, you know, hardware. That's it. What kind of hardware? Anything. I, I don't even use hardware. So I don't <laughs> you're just like that. Being, I don't mind. You're just like mind. being in like a Home Depot. Yeah, no, but you know, you go up in the aisles and you go like, oh, I, I, I'm sure I need a new screwdriver, or I'm sure there's something. You know what I mean? It's, it's that's a fun thing to shop for. Well, you're a creator, so you do like to build. You do like to build things. You no, like to, you like I don't build things. anything. But you like to build stories. I like to build stories. That require no hardware whatsoever. <laughs> so when, when you're directing movie, people come up to you and they go, "What should we? How do we make?" You just go, "I don't know." You figure it out. Well, yeah. Well, no. I mean, that's the nice thing about being a director. Actually, is that you're. It is your vision, which means you. 
you hopefully inspire a bunch of people that have expertise and you inspire them to, you know, bring the best of what they do to you. And then you say, yes, no, maybe a little more blue, whatever. Yeah. And do you, do you feel like you always know those answers or do you, do you say them just to have an answer? Oh, no, 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 no. I mean, there's lots of things you don't know. And part of the process of preparing for a movie is figuring out what you want to say with your film. And then refining the script and refining any kind of blueprint that, that you have, refining it so that it's, you know, ultimately all leads towards that meaning. Yeah. Um, and that evolves over the course of the movie. You think it's about one thing when you start, and then by the end you realize that it was really about something else that's kind of deeper and more complicated. Um, so it's a, an interesting combination of it gets simpler, you keep simplifying, and then it also gets deeper and more complicated. What do you learn about yourself? Because obviously you're, you, know, you think it's about one thing, but then you start the process and you start expressing these subconscious ideas that you have. Do you ever take a step back and go, huh, I guess that's what I was trying to work out? Yeah, it's a personal you – know, that's the beauty of the personal movie is that um, – by the time you get to the end of the movie, you by the time you get to the end of the process of it, whether it's the end of shooting or the end of editing, you've sort of uncovered some side of yourself that was at, unconscious at first and then now is there in all of its shameful neon. Yeah. And um, it's kind of an interesting process because I think you, you – you do kind of feel bad about yourself. You, it makes you feel bad about yourself and then you have to embrace that and move <laughs> through it. Um, yeah, the personal movie is an interesting thing. And this this movie that I just made. Money Monster. Money, Money yeah. Monster, you would say, is not a personal movie. And, um, you know, there's lots of bombs and guns and fast-paced things. And stock and market stuff. Stock market stuff and big movie stars and all of that. Um, so it is, you know, a general public movie that's taught and, and entertaining. Um, but still all the same personal movie things apply. Yeah. You know? Do you feel more exposed as an actor or as a director? Like when you put something out right. there, what, what do you feel more exposed in? Well, I think you're, ex- you're both, you're exposed in both things differently. Um, you know, as an actor, you don't have any control of how somebody uses your body. Right. So it's just like, you're just naked running down the street and, yeah. you know, anybody can, Take a selfie of you. I guess that wouldn't be a selfie. That would be a, that would be a youth. <laughs> an othery. <laughs> an othery. Um, they can, you know, you're just you're just out there. Um, but as a director, the whole point is that you control the images, you control the sound, the score, the props, the actors. You're you're trying to um, create a full vision, and then you present it to people and say, "This is what I meant to say about yeah. myself." So it's a it's. I think it's a way of being exposed. And yet being t- as much in control of it as you possibly could. Yeah. I mean, I, I didn't know. I was. I kind of wanted to just see, like, what was the first thing you ever did? And I went back, and it was the, like you did a lot of sitcoms. You did, like, a yeah. lot of <laughs> sitcoms when you were a, a kid. Yes, because that's what kids do, right? Yeah. And, you know, if you're short and blonde, I, you know, you end up on some kind of free camera show. Um, yeah, I did. I did everything. I did cartoons. I did... You know, I did three camera shows. I did. I sang in dumb bands, like you know, weird nineteen seventies bands, and um, yeah, I did all sorts. Of did crazy you like things. any of that when you were a kid, or was it just sort of like, oh, this is just what I do, I guess? Yeah, I guess I wasn't thinking about it. I, I, I it was just what I did, and um, I didn't hate it because I think if I hated it, my mom would have intuited that, and she would have said, "You don't have to do it anymore." Oh, that's cool. Um, I mean, there were parts of it that I hated. I hated, you know, washing off my makeup. I didn't like, um, or getting up at four in the morning and all that kind of stuff. But um, like any job, you know, there's there's parts of it you hate. But I think that I liked being a part of something that felt meaningful. Yeah. So then, 
it just sort of feels like when you're going through your resume, it's just like, oh, these really fun sitcom. And then Taxi Driver. <laughs> and it's like, well, that is a, a, a fierce departure from yeah. everything else. So you was that a conscious decision? Were you auditioning for film at that point? Or was it just kind of an accidental, like, well, this is a job, and wow, it just turns out to be this? No, I, I mean, I auditioned for everything. So, you know, you'd be stumped to find a movie in the 70s that had a kid in it that I had an audition for that I didn't know about. Um but there did come a certain point, maybe after I did Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, which mm-hmm. was the first movie I did with Scorsese. Um, I think I was coming to the end of the first real series that I had done. I did I did a series called Paper Moon. Yeah, based and, off the movie. Right. And right. my mom kind of put her foot down and said, you will no longer do television and you will only do features. Well, oh, wow. Um, I think she thought that was a good move. And so I did that. And then um, – you know, I, I how my the architecture of my career was really mostly about her, and um, I think the good news is is that whatever vicarious thrill she got from my career was about uh, me being somebody of substance and being respected. I think she wanted that for me, and maybe she wanted that for herself. And uh, I think that was, you know, if you're going to have a vicarious thrill, that seems to be a good one. <laughs> did you understand that at the time, or did you resent it in any way? No, I didn't resent it. I I just thought that's what. I did. I thought that was my job or that was my Olympic event. Yeah. Um, was was um, telling her stories somehow, the stories that interested her. And then she was good at leaving me alone. She would get, we would get on set. She never ran lines with me. She never talked about the character with me. Um, she would get on set and she would go directly to the uh, trailer and read magazines and books. Oh, wow. Yeah. That is kind of interesting. It, it almost seems like... It's weird. It's almost like there's a hybrid. It's like sort of stage mommy, but not stage mommy at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. She's she's an interesting lady, a really interesting lady. I mean, very solitary and really liked being alone and all of that. Um, But I think she liked uh, being behind someone. And I think she liked watching me take flight. I guess like everybody does with their kids. Sure. Um, You know, and she was just as supportive of my other brothers and sisters. Um, I had had a sister who's who's... I did design and was an artist when she was younger. And my mom, you know, painstakingly took her to all those art things that my mom didn't care about. And, uh, <laughs> you know, she took my brother to his little peewee baseball and all that stuff that she didn't care about um, in the hopes that the kids would be fulfilled. You know, did, did you when you saw a taxi driver, did you have an understanding of what was happening in the movie? Well, yeah. I mean, I grew up in L.A. and sure. I grew up in Hollywood. I grew up, you know. 10 blocks from here, which right. is not a nice part of town. No, and, and actually <laughs> was really not nice. No. Like, like they've, you know, they've kind of glossed it up a little bit. It's like, oh, the El Capitan's yeah. really nice. And it's like Hollywood Highland. Oh, there's a, you know, there's yeah. a Bath and Body Works. It's all nice. But uh, yeah, L.A. was a was a lot of reality. And um, it was great growing up here, I think. You know, we, my mom was really cool. I mean, we'd go eat, you know, Thai food and Filipino food and Korean food every day because we lived in this si- section of town. Yeah. And, um... She was adventurous, and um, she took me to lots of movies that I probably shouldn't have gone to. You know, <laughs> lots of art as a kid because we were a movie family, and she'd take me to film festivals, and she'd take me to see European weird German films, and so I think I knew what movies were, and I certainly knew what Taxi Driver was. I'd seen Mean Streets a whole bunch of times. Oh, nice. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, Mr. De Niro, I really liked you in Mean Streets. What? <laughs> well, and I'd made more movies than they had at that point. You know, That's I'd amazing. I'd made a ton of films by that point. So um, I really did – I understood what it was to be a professional, and I wanted to be a part of something that seemed so big and important. Yeah, yeah and – 
what was your what was your kind of relationship on the set? I mean, like, did you have a relationship with anyone on the set? And like, did you hang out afterwards? Did you just talk to De Niro about stuff, or was it very like, no. I come in, do my work, and then I leave? Yeah, I came, did did my work, and then I left. I mean, they were grownups, and uh, and Robert De Niro uh, was in his I am Robert De Niro phase, so he was in his like I'm <laughs> you know studying every role and I'm becoming the part and all of that. He was. Uh, odd, really generous with me and really wanted to help me in some ways, you know, learn what improvisation was. And he sort of took me through the steps of that without me even realizing it. Um, but I didn't, yeah, I didn't want to hang out with any of those people. You just wanted to go do the job. I, well, I was in New York City in the summer. I went to see tons of plays. I rode around in handsome cabs in Central Park. I you skateboarded. You know, I did all that stuff um, that was thrilling for me to be in New York City. It was thrilling to do that. I remember all the plays I saw. Oh, yeah? What was playing at the time? It was uh, Equus. Uh-huh. Uh, I saw that like three times with different actors. Um, Pippin. It was, you know, Pippin, Chicago, I think. Um, uh, a Little Night Music, I think, was on at that time. Do you like, the, do you like, do you, do you like doing theater? Never liked doing theater. No. Um, I did it at school a little bit, and then when I was in college, I did one play, and um, I was like, wow, I, I don't need to act in theater. <laughs> <laughs> what is it about theater? I think it's just that your one and only job is acting. And um, for me, it's not that that's the least interesting job, but the acting without the camera and without um, you know creating something complete that you then present to an audience, um, I guess I don't like the spontaneity. Oh, interesting. And that's the thing that everybody loves is the spontaneity. I love being an audience member and seeing theater. I love it. There's nothing like it. But I I don't like how uh, imperfect it is. Right. And exactly. also it's it's to a degree it's you know, it's only controlled so far. Like it's not an entirely controlled environment because you are right. forming an immediate relationship with the audience. It's yeah, right there. Yeah, and you you know, they can look wherever they want. And that's a problem for me. <laughs> oh, I don't want them looking wherever they want. I want them looking exactly where I want them to look at exactly the right time. So this this whole VR revolution must be really frustrating. <laughs> like, stop looking around all over the place. Yes. I mean, everything, you know, everything seems like it needs to be in 360. And I kind of feel like, yeah, but there's a certain kind of storytelling that really needs to tell the people, like, this is where you should look right now. Well, it's a really interesting time in movie making and um you know it's a transition period right now but technology has gone so much quicker and so much further than we could have ever thought um that in some ways the trickeries and the you know backflips of technology that we can do right now are wagging everything else yeah um you know the kinds of new tvs that are out now for example this you know, HDR revolution of TVs that are out that now, you know, people are starting to buy. And you're like, wait a minute, why are you buying that? I mean, <laughs> do you know what that's going to look like? And for some movies, it's wonderful. It's wonderful for the eye, for the television eye to see things that the normal eye can't see or yeah. to have an experience that the normal eye doesn't experience. Um, that That is, is – but is it painterly? And would that be good for a period movie? Is it good for everything? And should everything be run through that? Because now we're creating a technology that now is going to obliterate all the other technologies. Right. And then you won't be able to make a movie <laughs> that looks like the human eye. Is that what we want to do? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's 
you know, how much information can the human brain process? And there, and it's certainly like when stuff, when you see it HD, and it's like, oh, look, they kind of made it HD this whole movie. And you're like, well, that just looks like shit. Like it wasn't supposed <laughs> to look that way. Like it kind of needs to be, yeah. you know, well, it you needs ch- to be a little fuzzy. And you choose things for a reason. I mean, you you choose, for example, you know, let's decide you you decide to have a blue pallor, and the and the whole film has kind of like a blue quality to it, a coldness to it, um, because it elicits a certain emotion. Because that's how you're telling the story, and the audience may not realize that they're feeling a certain way because of the various techniques that you've employed, the choices that you've made. Yeah. But the second you you just use technology because you can um, and, you know, bigger, better, faster, deeper, more saturated, more contrasty is supposed to be better, it's not necessarily the intention of the filmmaker. Right. You know? But that's true of everything now. I mean, I think that's true of everything now. The ex- cyborg experience and our our relationship to it, you know, how we are intravenously, um, whether we like it or not, becoming more and more cyborg is really taking over everything, not just art, but it's taking over everything. Well, sure, because I think there's this idea that <clears throat> more is better and progress is – like, quote-unquote, progress is always what you should strive for without really thinking, like, well, where are we going and what is this progressing to and how is this affecting our lives? I mean, to kind of tr- really understand how – Certainly the internet, which I don't think we have fully evolved to process right. the wealth of information and the social me- – everything social media. What are the effects of that going to be in 20 years? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I, I hope that's positive. It's a really interesting time. That's why I say it's just sort of an interesting transition period. And I, I, I'm not I'm – not, I don't want to be a, an old fogey because I, I really – uh, I see the beauty that, that technology's brought to us, you know, in the arts and everywhere else and, and the ease and all that kind of stuff. So I, I, I do want to – you know, like gaming, for example, which is there's just such amazing artistry in gaming right now, probably more creative than anywhere else in the industry. Um, so I'm not, you know, spitting on all of that stuff. But um, I, I just don't know what's where, where, where I fit in and where am I going to go? I mean, I don't know about you. You guys probably know what's happening in the world. Like I hear at least 10 times a day, somebody says to me, oh, yeah, how about that thing on blah, blah, blah? And I go, huh? What thing? Like, I never know. <laughs> Anything. I never know what television show is happening. I don't. I don't know what people are wearing. I don't know what song. Everybody else somehow is ahead of me, <laughs> and it's not because I'm doing all these fabulous things that are taking my time. I'm not doing anything. <laughs> You're sort of lying in bed, staring at the ceiling. Yeah, and I'm not. Yeah, I'm not like getting a lot done or. You know, solving nuclear fusion or something. I'm not doing anything, and I can't. I can't keep up. And I'm. Is that okay? Like, I, I really, I'm worried. Like, is that okay? Because I'm not. It's not like I'm. It's not like I'm. You know, getting a Nobel Prize because I'm not on the internet. But you, so you're not on the internet at all. <laughs> yeah, I am. I mean, I do the regular things, but who can keep up? I mean, no, it's I, impossible. Yeah, well, I think most people don't. You just ask your kids, like, what do you do? Well, I hand them my device. <laughs> I say you do it. Yeah, it's pretty much what I do. I hand it over to somebody else. I mean, it, it's it is a it is a whole separate job almost to keep up with all that stuff. And even though, even though I feel like, yeah, I do a lot of things, and I host a show that is all about social media, and so I feel right. like I I still feel like I don't know most of what someone will go. Hey, did you see that? No, I didn't. Where did that? You know. Yeah. So it is. I think it's just literally impossible right now. That would have to be your sole job. Yeah, and it's really good for people that have fact minds that love to accumulate 
pieces of information. And I, I have like a – it's almost like I've had a disease that, you know, fried certain parts of my gray matter at birth or something because I can't retain – I don't retain facts. I don't know why. It could be part of your clutter aversion. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like – I'm not that into facts. You, you know, I, I, that's why I was bad on those tests. You know, they'd say, you know, how many horses did so-and-so? I'd be like, I don't know, and I don't care. I don't know. It's 1792. I have no idea. I don't retain it. I don't care. I'm not a fact person, but I'm an idea person. So yeah. I'll retain ideas. I'll retain people's faces. I'll remember casting on something from, you know, 40 years ago. But I don't have a lot of room for facts. So this is like the worst generation in the world for me. Yeah, but you obviously – I mean, you went to Yale. I mean, you obviously. Yeah, but I did. I took. I'm, I I wrote papers. I figured it out. <laughs> I figured it out my sophomore year. I was like, hey, if I never take a test class and I just take paper classes, then I'm going to get really good grades. <laughs> and it totally, it totally worked. Yeah, I just wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote. But you, but people realized early on that you were super smart, and that and that was kind of interesting. That must have been kind of interesting. They're like. Wow, an actor that speaks more than one language. I mean, this is crazy, you know? Like, everyone, I feel like pretty quickly, when you were a teenager, they started making a big deal out of that. that was that odd or off-putting or? I was nice, I think. It's nice to feel like people respect you, um, even though it's not really based in a lot of reality. I mean, I didn't feel, I certainly, not only did I not feel smarter than anybody I went to college with, I felt completely dumber than anyone I went to college with. Maybe everybody feels that way. I think maybe most people do feel that way. Um, yeah, I think they probably do. But um, it, I guess at the time, it was unusual for an actor to, you know, go into academia. And it, it was it's, – it's, it's unusual even now for an actor to be a um, – to be that interested in big concepts. You know, they're, yeah. they're kind of moment-by-moment moment people. And because I wasn't born to be an actor, I think – I just adapted to one. Um, it's what's made my acting a little unusual. But what made you go back? I mean, to, because everything... Oh, and by the way, mm -hmm. I just want to tell you, I love Candle Shoe. I, I don't know. know if you hear that a lot. <laughs> I don't. I don't know if you care. <laughs> Maybe you don't. But it's such a great... It's such a wonderful movie. As, actually, some people on Twitter who knew you were coming on, they were like, ask her if she's going to make Candle Shoe too." And I'm like, she's probably not going to do that. That would be funny if I did Candle Shoe too. Well, I could pl I'd play the Helen Hayes character. Oh, wow. Yeah, yes. you could go back. I could go back. You could go back. I mean, you know, were those experiences fun for you or did they feel like work? Or did you have one that particularly felt like special to you? Um. Well, it was my whole life. I mean, it wasn't – it was my whole life. So I, I didn't never stopped and went like, wow, how does this feel? Or um, I never considered it – I knew it was my job, but I also knew that it was everything that I'd ever known. I mean, I started at the time I was three, so I don't really have any memories sure. that before I started acting. Um, it was just what I did. It, it's, it's, I, it's, I start realizing it now. I see – you know, I'm trying to figure out like what do my kids do for the summer – and I just don't have any reference. Like I don't. I don't know what kids are supposed to do. Oh, you do a summer. movie, right? Your kids are going to do a movie this well, summer. Well, I did a movie every summer of my life. I never, you know, I never was on it. I was never on a team. I didn't go to summer camp. I didn't, you know, lay around in the house watching television and you know getting bored or go out with the neighborhood kids. Like I didn't. I didn't have that life. And I don't know what to do with. I'm. I don't know what I'm supposed to do with them. 
uh, it, it, maybe it is camp or maybe it is a trip or something. Yeah, they do all that, but it seems a little lazy. Right. <laughs> it all seems a little lazy compared to my childhood, I guess. <laughs> it seems <laughs> well, a little lazy. Well, you did lazy. have an exceptional childhood. Your childhood was different than, I would say, almost everyone yeah. in the history of, of time. So that is kind of an interesting thing to think about is if you were conditioned to do all these things and have this work ethic and have to do this and you were a you were an income earner from the time you were three yeah. but your kids you know maybe they don't have maybe they're like hey can we just can we just lie around yeah and pretty much that's what they do <laughs> they do a lot of lying around um, when i was your age i went to the academy awards <laughs> okay i get it <laughs> yeah and it was a lot of i see the burden of it i mean i see that it's shape my personalities in positive ways but also in negative ways too you know that's a lot of responsibility for a little kid and uh it's a lot of worry and a lot of feeling like um a lot of obligation feeling like my like if i did it wrong something bad would happen to the people i loved around me sure you know if i got fired it was a big deal in my family right or if i didn't work you know i supported the family so that was a big deal or if i you know was messed up and left school you know left school and became a stripper that would have impacted my family absolutely i mean i i found an old interview you did with roger ebert when you were like 16 or something and it was and i think it was the question of well you know like young stars like they go out and they go to parties i think it was right around foxes or something so it was you're talking it was talking about like are you anything like these characters? Like, no, I just go home. Like, it's not. Don't lead a crazy yeah. lifestyle. Was that was that by choice? Did none of that interest you, or was it was there strict parenting? Yeah, it just was my personality, and I think my mom was. I don't know how strict she was. I mean, of all the kids, I didn't never had a curfew. There really wasn't anything that I was ever told that I couldn't do. I think because I didn't care or I didn't want that. You know. Um, and I liked my time alone. I liked reading and I liked movies and, um, I was really geared towards school. Oh, wow. That's such an interesting, I mean, to, to go to school, to go to Yale and to major in literature and then to go, yeah, I think I'm gonna go back and act again. Like, was it, did you just go, well, I don't know what else to do or did you just miss the process of it? Well, I worked the whole time I was in school. So I, I did five movies while I was, while I was at Yale. And oh, they, for some reason, I thought you like took a couple years off and went because the movies weren't very successful. But no, <laughs> I, I, I made a lot of movies, and uh, but I didn't think that I would work uh, after eighteen. Everybody kept telling me your career will be over by the time you're eighteen. My mom kept saying that, and she'd say, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? And do you want to be a lawyer? Do you want to be a doctor? You know, the inference was you definitely don't want to be an actor when you grow up because it's not going to be available to you. Oh, that's crazy. Um, but that was true. I think that was true of pretty much every young actor that by the time they were eighteen, their career was over. Um, so I assumed I'd go to college and then I would, you know, maybe try and act a little bit just to sort of keep the income thing because I'd always done sure. it. And then it would just fizzle out and then I'd move on to whatever it was that I was going to do after. And that didn't really happen. Was it uh, – did it happen accidentally or did you really, really pers- – did you feel defiant? Like, oh, well, maybe I will show you that I'm going to work past 18. I think I was a little defiant. Um, I remember when I graduated from college and I spent that, you know, first six months – you know, sleeping till noon and not knowing what I was going to do with my life. I did. I went out on auditions, a bunch of auditions, and I remember feeling like, wow, if, I mean, I see how dedicated actors are, 
and they're like, you know, if I, I, I don't care. I just want to be in a Fruit of Loom commercial. That's fine by me. <laughs> but I didn't feel that way. I felt like, wow, I, I've acted my entire life. And if I'm not going to work on really good scripts, then I'm not sure this is what I want to do with my life. I'm not sure that it's worth it to me. Um, because mostly because I'd already done it already. I'd done taken all those steps. I'd done a thousand junkets. I'd done, you know, I'd, I'd done all of it. So yeah. was I just going to do that for another 60 years and um, hope to, you know, get a couple commercials a year or something? Um, so I kind of, you know, I got, took my GREs and thought I'd go to grad school and try to figure out what else I would do. And then, you know, I did decused and that sort of changed everything. That really did change it. I mean, did you did you understand that as you were making it? This is this is going to be a serious, important movie. I don't know. I knew the role was kind of life changing. Um, I didn't know whether I, I didn't know whether the film was going to be successful or not. Um, I didn't think I was very good in it. Really, I was more convinced than ever that I needed to go to grad school, and. Um, so I just assumed my career was over then. That's when I that's when I thought was the end of my career was the accused. But then after the accused, then but then after the nomination, after all that happened, did you go? Oh, maybe I'm not a good judge of my own stuff. Yeah, I, it made me it made me realize something. I think well, I, you know, I was only 25, however old I was, and um, I brought my own prejudices to it. You know, I think uh, I I was confused by the character because she was kind of offensive and mouthy and loud and annoying and I'm not that way right so I was sort of like wow she's irritating (laughs) I think everyone's gonna hate this movie and um but I didn't but I couldn't figure out how to play her any differently so I was I was hard on myself I kept thinking like why can't I figure out how to play this character differently and then I realized that it was you know that that was the instinct that I had and I had to stop thinking about it and just go with the instinct that I had and that um, it was a good lesson for me. To trust your instincts. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, when all of the – everything, you know, really took off, like really blew up after that, mm-hmm. was that – did that make you uncomfortable? Like was it so much that it was kind of uncomfortable being under the scrutiny and the, the – I mean even though you had been when you were a kid, did it just feel familiar in not a good way? Well, there's good parts and bad parts and um, – I kind of felt like that was my family business that I was raised in and that I was, you know, I had the right mechanics to be able to pull it off, I guess. You know, like if you're an astronaut and you don't get nausea and you don't mind the zero G and um, you don't mind being alone, well, astronaut is a good job for you. Right. And I thought that, you know, being a successful actor and being in the public eye was kind of a good job for me because I had a system. And I had the system that I had had as a child and, you know, I did my junkets and I showed up on time and I knew everybody's names and I um, compartmentalized my life and um, that somehow it wouldn't affect me in any kind of adverse way. I figured like I had a handle on it. And to some extent that's kind of true, but to another extent it – obviously it does impact on your life. And Absolutely. You, you know, if you grow up a certain way, if you grow up in the wilderness – Without any parents, you know, maybe you have a happy life, but it's a different life than you might have had. You just described Nell. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but you, you know, you get these survival tools that get you through it. And then later on in life, you realize that the survival tools might be a little, um, might be because of trauma. Oh, interesting. And is that something you've ta- faced or thought about or do you, do you? 
I do think about it, and I, I think about it, and it comes out in the movies I make. You know, I think that um, uh, I think that's certainly a little man Tate. Uh, you know, the Beaver, yeah. and uh, and certainly Money Monster. I mean, all three of those. There's a theme of the celebrity or or all those people that have expectations of you and you think of yourself as this just, you know, failed person. And, um, that, that, that always happens. I mean, that's, how are you supposed to know who you are if you're constantly being put up on a pedestal or you're constantly being treated like somebody who's different? You know, it's, it's hard to figure out what your own real identity is. In fact, I don't think you can figure it out there in the moment. I think you have to step outside of it for a second and, and realize, you know, the what you've what, what it's done to you in some ways. I mean, th- this idea that you know being put up on a pedestal or or, mm. or this kind of one dimensional representation of what people think you are, of course, it has to screw with your identity because mm-hmm. other people are telling you, oh, this is you're in a box and we're going to put you here, and this this is you, and how do you mm. even when you that's all you know, how do you even get around that? Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, well, hopefully you have good survival tools, which I think I did. Um, my mom gave me good ones, and I found some good ones on my own. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you're merchandise, and you accept that. In fact, if you don't know any different, you just assume that's all you are. You yeah. just think you don't have any other worth besides your value as merchandise. And if you're if people are still paying $20 for you, then you're a, a good Barbie. Oh, man. And if they're paying... 50 cents for you and throwing you away in the trash then obviously you're a bad barbie you know what i mean <laughs> so you 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 learn that really you know that's a hard that's a tough thing to figure out as a grown-up and as a grown-up you you know in order to be somewhat functioning i think you have to figure out who you are and what your value is aside from the uh you know what people can extract from you and when did you start getting comfortable with when did you start even figuring that out and get comfortable with it well, that's the great thing about making movies. It's the great thing about writing books or painting paintings, I think, is you – it's self-expression, self-exploration. And you, you – it's not like you're just talking about yourself all the time. I think you, you start being attracted to things. You get attracted to ideas and you think, why am I so – why can't I not get any sleep? I can't get any sleep. I can't stop thinking about that thing. And you don't understand why it's so relevant to you. But through the course of – you know, visualizing the film or making the film or injecting all of your own personal things onto it, suddenly you realize why that's important to you. And then you have an opportunity to talk about it and kind of switch your gears up. Yeah. I mean, because I haven't actually, I don't know if I, you haven't really done a lot of long form stuff at all, mm-hmm. right? Long form, what is like it? Like long form chats. Like, like, oh, I don't, like what we're doing now? Like exactly what we're doing oh. right now. Have you done a lot of long form stuff? Uh, no, I don't, I've done, you know, NPR. Yeah. I've done, uh, I've, yeah, I've done interviews and things. And, and I'm, I'm just whoever it is that's in front of me. I have that bad habit where I just become whoever it is in front of me. So if I get somebody who asks me, you know, really serious, boring, depressing questions, I will get seriously <laughs> boring and depressing. And if I have somebody who's just like, what is your favorite color? I can do that too. Yeah. Um, although that's the one I like the least. Um, but if you have, you know, if you have a dialogue and with somebody that can kind of shoot back and forth, then I think you, you know, you, you, you get into that. That's, that, those are the adaptive skills. Yeah. I mean, that is, that is, the, those are the, that, that's so, that's so fascinating to hear mm-hmm. that because it's like, it's like, 
it's almost like a government program. Like that's what you were trained to do is be dropped into any situation yes. and sort of be a chameleon in that situation and express yeah. whatever that environment. Yeah, it's a little La Femme Nikita kind of thing. <laughs> it kind of is. Yes, and that's your, you know, that is your survival tool. And some people are really, you know, it's it's why there's a lot of 18-year-olds that are film actors that, you know, end up dead in a hotel room or end up, you know, messed up. I mean, because children should not have to have to live that kind of life. I mean, they shouldn't have to. It right. is, it's a weird Femme Nikita thing to have to do. Yeah. Um, uh, but I, I do feel like somehow I got given the tools to be able to be fairly well adjusted about it. Yeah, I mean, clearly, or at least be able to understand how to express it through art or something that allowed you to kind of deal with it rather than just imploding. Yeah, rather than just imploding. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, I, you're, you're right. Being, no, I'm sure right. you do have those days where you're like, well, I'm imploding today and uh, everything's gone to shit. Yeah, and there are things that um, shouldn't drive me crazy and that I should be able to handle that I can't handle at all because I didn't grow up like a regular person, you know, like a regular kid. I mean, there are things I'm, I just just can't, can't deal with. Like what? Like what's something that just sends you into a complete tailspin? I have a really hard time with um, always, like my whole uh, what you're going to wear and my whole physical appearance thing. Right. So I've learned – because it makes me so stressed out and makes me feel bad about myself. Like I, I, I can't you – know, if I had a uniform, like if I was a Sikh, I would be really happy. You somebody would exactly. say, OK, you just wear white. If you're a white Sikh, you just wear white. I wouldn't want to be a white Sikh. I'd want to be like a navy blue Sikh. <laughs> <laughs> but if they <laughs> – Right? You don't want to be – I don't look good in white. But if they just said to you, that's it. You can't – you have no other choice and all you can wear is navy blue. You can't – the car is navy blue. You know, The you, shirt you're wearing is navy blue. That's true. Yeah. Then I would be OK because I wouldn't have to go – how will they – how will I appear to them? Will, would it be better if I wore beige or would it be better if I did a three-quarter skirt? Like all that stuff to me is paralyzing. I start breaking out and feeling like I don't have the answers to any of these questions. It all feels very arbitrary and it feels like I'm being judged on something that I'm not even good at. Right. So I, I just start flipping out. So I've learned as an adaptive skill, <laughs> <laughs> I've learned to get people to buy me outfits for Christmas. Mm-hmm. And I request that. I'll be like, I need underwear or I really need T-shirts. What if or, they're like, well, by your rule, I can't give you a present, but here's a poem. <laughs> or you're like, no, I need a I need, I need damn it. <laughs> um, or I've learned that if I go on a press tour, for example, I have a really person who loves, who's great, loves to shop and is amazing and has great taste and who knows me and knows what fits me and is like, okay, where well, I'm going to bring over 10 things and we're going to see, you know, then you're going to wear this. And then she puts it in a hanger and then one of it says Monday and literally the socks, the underwear, the bra, the everything. Like I don't have to think about it. And then there's a little picture attached to it as well that is me in that thing. So <laughs> I can't mess up. <laughs> and then I don't, I don't have any anxiety. It's just everything is just that like A to B to C to laid out so you don't have to. Right. That's really there, – there, there is a consistency that is really – that I really like which is – you 
it seems like your survival skill is just to get rid of any clutter, to have the simplest point from A to B, to unload emotionally and also in the physical universe, just anything that gets that's cloudy. Yeah. Anything. is just get it out of the way and let's just focus on the task at hand. Yeah. And yeah. In, in a business that is mostly about bullshit and clutter, <laughs> that is an interesting dichotomy to have to live. Yeah, I know. I, I mean, I think that's why I've been able to get stuff done. I get a lot done. I mean, I can get things done because I know how to, you know, extricate all the shit from my ears. I can throw it all away and not listen. If there's a fire engine outside, I just don't pay attention. Yeah, yeah, that's, but that's, I mean, in, so, in some cases, yes, I can understand, like, okay, you may not know the TV shows and you may not have, like, a, a wall full of toys like I have here, but, <laughs> but you are more likely to get shit done in an efficient manner. Yeah, and then I can choose what my joyful, um, you know, mindless activities are. Yeah. And, I, and I have those. And I can choose what they are, and and then I can completely focus 100% on that, whether it's like I like football, for example, and I like Sunday. I like Sunday football. And football and sports are the dumbest things in the world because they amount to nothing. <laughs> At the end of the day, you have nothing to hold in your hand. You have like – they're they're just they're just a useless a useless use of your time but i really need that and i by the time i get to sunday i really need some kind of useless piece of time to completely and totally focus on absolutely well i mean i would tell you and i'm not a sports person but i will tell you i do understand it's not useless because it is you know, I think the most important thing that people have is a community. Like, right. it's, we're always constantly trying to find communities, and they're not always the best communities, but right. people just need to sort into communities because we need to feel connected to something. And there is a shared communal experience. You're watching a thing, yep. you're shutting the world out, you're connected to an, ex- an experience you're that all painting people... your face. You're painting, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. You're pa- <laughs> yes, you are. You're, you're painting your face. You're painting your face, uh, you're writing John 316 <laughs> on your chest, and you're getting drunk. <laughs> But uh, th- there is there is a sh- there is a shared you know kind of a human experience. So I, I really do I really do understand that. And and also you know finding ways to what what are you, is that your favorite way to kind of distract your brain? I really like skiing. Oh, nice! I really like to ski, and um, I think it's you know I mean you know nature all of that. Um, but I like the idea that if you don't pay attention, you're going to die. Yeah. That if you um, if you don't, you know, notice that tree and notice your feet and uh, and then somehow have all of that noticing and all of that concentration you kind of morph into something that's just feelings like dance, you know, that I like. And you're just you're, – you're in the moment. It's – you're experiencing. Yeah. And if you think about, you know, the government or if you think about <laughs> people's birthdays or, <laughs> you know, what is going to happen to my son's feet if he doesn't wear his orthotics – if any of those responsibilities or fear comes into play, you will die. So you can't bring them in. <laughs> can't bring them in. Do you express that to your kids where you're like, okay, listen, mommy's very methodical. You don't necessarily <laughs> have to do all that stuff, but it is helpful in some ways. Like, Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I did a lot for them as children. Um, I laid out their clothes and I, you know, I tied their shoes and I, I put their vitamins out. And I did all that kind of stuff. I chopped all the wood and um, and then I reached a certain point and I realized like, wow, they don't know how to chop wood. Like they don't know how to do anything. <laughs> and um, 
I, we used to have these plates. Um, they were really cute. They were they had little French words on them, and yeah. they eat. They had little compartments. And let's just say it was a zoo plate. Then it would say, you know, giraffe, monkey, you know, all that kind of stuff. But in each one of the compartments, you could put a different type of food. So you could put a fruit, you could put a rice, you could put um, meat, and you could put, you know, a vegetable. And there was probably one more compartment left. My kids got – they were like, wait, where's my fruit? <laughs> they got to the point where they could only – they were like – they expected for there to be – five or six food groups at every time and for them to be in these little oh compartments. <laughs> and I realized that this, I'm doing a terrible disservice. Like they should have some self – they should. They have to start learning some kind of self-reliance and not think that somehow there's always going to be five food groups put in front of you. Um, you know, you didn't put the picture of my outfit, so I don't know, <laughs> I don't know. What, am exactly. I to, what am I supposed to wear. Um, so now they have – you know, they're much more independent now. Oh, that's cool though. Yeah. It's good. And it's also probably – you know, I from what I understand about parenting, there's a lot of, like, you might want to over-control, but you do have to relinquish some control yeah. to a point where it's probably a little uncomfortable. Yeah, and now it's fun because now they're older and we – they're – you know, even though they're still my children, they're really like friends. So we'll go to movies together or I say, you know, what time are you coming over or, you know, when is your is your girlfriend coming for dinner and – um and it's sort of – it's like living with friends. Oh, that's really nice. That's really nice. Yeah. So uh, – after the accused, and mm-hmm. then from then on, did you feel like uh, you felt a you felt a a tectonic shift in your career at that point? I imagine I've had a lot of tectonic shifts. <laughs> that was one. That was one. I mean, there have been a variety of them in my life where that have been big light bulb revelations about acting or about movies or about what I wanted to be or what I never wanted to do again. Um, the accused was. Uh, yeah, I think it was it was committing to being an actor, and, I, and I'm not sure. I'm not sure that I had consciously ever really 100 percent done that before. Um, yeah, I had acted, of course, and I had, but I'm not sure. I I think maybe I had. I just had never really committed to what what an actor was, and that was the first experience for that. Well, also, you know, did you have a movie like that before that had such a tremendous social impact? I mean, just right. you know, it was it was certainly a topic, and the way that it was presented was just something that wasn't really talked about in our mm. culture, you know? And so, you know, representing this woman who was a victim of a horrible thing and then actually helped potentially other women speak up or fight back or some something. I mean, did you feel the the social impact of that? Yeah, I guess I I people wanted me to feel the social impact of that and I found I I found that uh problematic. Um, because I felt like I just wanted to make movies, and right. I, and I, that's really what I was. If I was ever an expert at something, it was making movies that's and what creating knew. characters. And I didn't want to start getting off into some tangent where now I thought I knew how to be a doctor because I played one on TV. Right, right, right. And um, I was really careful about that. Um, you know, I had had an experience that was profound for me, which was playing a rape victim, but I wasn't a rape victim, right. and I couldn't really speak as if I was one. And I didn't want to be put in. I, I didn't I don't like the spokesman thing. Um and I know a lot of people get it and they're better at that than I am, but it's just not my personality. I'm right. not good at being a spokesman. I'm, I'm all I know how to do is make movies. Right. And speak French. And speak <laughs> and, and you can make movies in French too. That's you can make true. movies in French. That's true. I mean, it's uh with Silence of the Lambs came along was that that you must have sensed that was going to be a tectonic shift. Um, well, while we were making the movie, I think, I think we were excited about it, but, um, I didn't really realize what that was going to be. No, I didn't realize where it was headed. 
Um, I don't think you ever really do. I think hopefully you're just saying like, you know, how can I do justice to this character and how can I take this story from beginning to end? I think anytime you get cynical and start thinking like, ooh, the audience is going to love this or, um, you know, the audience is going to laugh here, you just fall flat on your face and make terrible turds. <laughs> I think that's, it's, just, it's a recipe well, for disaster, I think, anticipating audiences' reaction and, you know, looking for result. It's just it's just a, such a bad idea in filmmaking. Yeah, um, not a lot of big laughs in Silence of the Lambs. Uh, uh, no, no, not too not, many. Not too many big we laughs. had a lot while we were shooting, though. It was a fun set. Oh, I can imagine. I bet it was amazing. I mean, it just that that group, and particularly, do you find that when you're on a, a, a kind of heavy subject matter, there is more comedy on the set because people are just trying to process? Sometimes, sometimes that's true. It all comes from the director, you know, and and uh, the director is the person who sets the tone. A director is the person who. You know, everybody is sort of tiptoeing around, figuring out how do they want it. You know, do they want the set to be light? Do they want this? Do, do they want it to be completely quiet? Do they want um, other people to have influence and to have opinions, or do they want it just to be completely shut out? And you spend the first week of shooting, or at least rehearsals anyway, figuring out who the director is and what they want, and then the set reflects that persona. Yeah, because uh, it, what you were talking about before. When you start getting result oriented as opposed to process oriented, that's where you kind of start to get fucked a little bit because mm-hmm. you cannot direct what's going to happen. So it, it's I think it's good for people to hear. It's good for creative people to hear. Like, yeah, even when we were making Silence of the Lambs, no one was like <laughs> high fiving, like, oh boy, we're gonna. No, God, not at all. I mean, and it was and it was a it was a nice set. I mean, Jonathan Demme is just a lovely man, and he's happy and joyful he's just like a great parent he's excited for you he's that guy clapping on the sidelines on your soccer team when you're a kid and um he's very decisive but he's just a lovely person so the set was very warm um he has you know aloha shirt fridays and um there was a lot of there's always a lot of music around and there's a lot of musicians that come visit the set and there's always somebody from his life or member of his family that's in a scene with you because <laughs> all the extras are, te- are the technicians on the movie like there's always someone that's a friend of his that's in the scene with you um and i think that his you know his point of view as a filmmaker has always been goodness you know he he always makes films from the good person's perspective and bringing that to silence of the lambs was really the key to the film um it's just that he really related to clarice and to her her leadership, you know, as a good person, a good, solid person who wanted to save women uh, yeah. instead of making the horror movie about the, you know, gross guy that drops people up and eats them. Right. Because, the, you know, there is a version of that movie where, where you know, Anthony Hopkins' performance just eats up everyone. And it's yeah. like, well, that's all you see. But that didn't, you know, like you still managed to find this really strong character to kind of come to his level. So were was there a lot of rehearsal before you did that? Or did you just magically have chemistry with yeah, him? Yeah, no rehearsal at all. In fact, we only met once for, for a uh, like a read-through in New York City. He was busy doing another movie, so he came in for a read-through. And I don't know what happened. I got a phone call. I went to the bathroom. And by the time I came back, everybody was seated at the table already, and I hadn't met him. So I sat down, and I shook hands with him, and then we did the role together. And I was so scared after the read-through because he was so weird and scary that I just would I didn't I I never talked to him really again. And what <laughs> then when he finally came to set to do his whatever his 20 days of shooting or however long it was, they bolted him in behind those um jail walls. 
Um, and because the scenes were so long, he'd spend one day bolted in on his side. And then the next day, with the camera would be facing the other direction, it would sort of be looking at me. So we kind of never were – it felt like we weren't in the same room together in a way. We were acting together, but we never really talked to each other. Oh, wow. And then that just became this weird self-fulfilling prophecy. Like we never talked at all in the film. I just got more and more scared of him. And the last day of shooting, I, we finally had lunch together and I was eating tuna fish sandwich. I remember that part. And he was. He said, "I was scared of you." I said, "I was scared of you." <laughs> and he threw his arms around me, and then you know it was all good from then on. Oh, that's nice. I mean, do you when you work on something? Do you, is it sort of like when you move on, you do you lose touch with people? Do you still keep in touch with people, or is it? It's a weird thing being an actor. Um, you definitely lose touch with everyone. Sure. And um, technicians all come together, right? If you're a camera department, usually you've worked together before. So the first AC, the second AC, the third AC, and the camera operator and the DP have all worked together. So they come as a department. And this is true of all the different departments, whether it's sound or you know, yeah. lights or whatever. But as actors, you come in, you work with these people, and then you kind of never see them again. Um, and when I was a kid, that was really traumatic. Because I'd be on a set for a month or two months or three months or be on a television show for longer. And then the show would get canceled or the movie would be over. And I was eight or eight years old. Which feels like forever. Yeah. And then I never saw them again. And so the first week was, you know, devastating. I was devastated not seeing these people every single day. Um, If you live that way your whole life, then as time goes on, you get more and more used to it. And it's something you sort of accept. Um, With actors... I can never keep up friendships with actors. I just—they're always flying somewhere. They're always doing something. Actors sometimes are flaky. Yeah, <laughs> and sometimes. they're a little—they can be a little me first. <laughs> sure. It's like, oh, I'm no, I've got to be in Palm Springs. Sorry, me first. Um, so I never keep up with any of the actors that I've ever worked with. Um, very, very few. And we kind of shake hands at the end of the movie and go like, "You're so fantastic," and we've gotten so close. This has been such an intimate relationship, and I'll probably never see you. <laughs> but there, there is something that. There's something that's kind of special about that. There was a moment in time that, yeah. you, that you had that you don't have to necessarily recreate because you got to go on and, and yeah. do a new thing. Yeah, and you, you kind of accept that. There have been movies like that. I mean, this, this movie Carnage I did where there were just four of us. That was it, just four of us in a room and one room, the whole movie. And I feel like I got closer to those actors than I ever have, you know, ever. And we've never been able to connect again. Do you, is there a movie that in particular that maybe isn't so obvious that's really personal and special to you? Um, you know, they all are for their sure. for their own reasons. But um, well, wh- which one the, did you feel the most? Oh, go ahead. What were you? Gonna I say? mean, I'd say the brave one in a weird way. I think the brave one was a really kind of a turning point for me. I felt um, it was a special movie for me. And um, there's something about this very solitary character who uh, was discovering a side of herself that was kind of ugly, but also super exciting and beautiful. And um, because the film was filmed at night and I was in New York City all by myself and I spent a lot of time just like with my headphones on walking, 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 walking in New York City. You do kind of – it's not that you become the character. that You definitely don't become the character. But you, you get obsessed with something and then that's all you think about and that's all you do. So you're pretty much obsessively inside one person. Right. And um, it was very life-changing, that movie, for me. And you had you not felt that before? I mean, it kind of seems like you're good at, eh, do this, and then kind of move yeah. on, do this, kind of move on. Yeah, I, I guess that was the hardest movie for me to walk away from. It was just the hardest one to uh, uh, sort of shed, in a way. I kept, I kept going, like, but wait, that was, 
that was beautiful, and and now I'm here, but I want to be back there. You know? Oh wow, yeah, especially that far into your career that you could still have that experience, yeah. and not be like, ah, acting is acting. Yeah, it made me. I realized a lot of things. I think I realized that I was. S- sleeping a lot in my own life and i just mean that metaphorically i feel like i was a little bit asleep yeah. so that when i did the brave one i was suddenly awake and uh then i didn't want to go back to sleep again so it it made me change my life a little bit and i started working more do you uh have you acted in anything in the i looked at your imdb page and it said yeah. like 2013 was the last yeah. acty thing yeah i haven't acted in anything do you not just do you not want obviously you could if you wanted to do you is just haven't seen anything well, or I really want to focus on directing. Um, I will act again. Of course I will. I mean, I've always acted. I'm sure I will act again. Yeah. I don't know what it'll be, and hopefully it'll be something that isn't what I already have done 100,000 times, <laughs> um, which is hard to do when you've made so many movies. It's You know, you, you can repeat yourself easily because people are always offering you the same parts that they offered you before. Sure. Um, oh, yeah. Well, that's also – how do you – you know, as someone who's definitely – keep breaking I mean I think the same year you did Taxi Driver you did Bugsy Malone right those must have been right on top of each other one right after the other could not have been more disparate experience and of course you know I was the right I fucking loved that movie it's like Bugsy Malone Bugsy Malone, yeah. yeah. I don't think as a six-year-old taxi driver was really <laughs> my wheelhouse, but but uh, but you know the Pie Guns and the yeah. Paul Williams sound. I listened to that soundtrack a hundred thousand times. Yeah, the pencil thin mustaches. It was just great. So creative, <laughs> so amazing. Alan Parker, he was so great. Yeah. Um, yeah, I liked I like to do different things um, as an actor, and I and I I know that there's something that I'm known for. And, what do you think that is? Uh. That I'm drawn to and that I'm known for because I choose the parts. Sure. Um, I play solitary, dramatic characters, you know, that um, go through something. uh, I guess they go through something and find their heroism in some ways through trauma. Sure. And so what is the type of a role that you would want to do? Have you ever just thought about, like, I just want to do a dumb comedy. I just want to, like, do a ridiculous comedy. Comedy doesn't have the lure for me that it does for a lot of other people. Because, you know, comedy's not easy. Comedy's not fun to do comedies. <laughs> um, to try to engineer having that energy over and over and over again, it just doesn't come naturally to me. I mean, I can do it, but I don't love it um, the way a lot of people do. Um, I also, when I go to pick out a DVD, I don't go for comedy. Right. I'd rather see a drama. It just feels like a it, – it, I don't know. It feels so, too insubstantial. Yeah. Um, but I would like to. I would like to be in a movie where I had to learn to do something really hard. So, um, you know, throw a javelin, sure, or uh, play the violin, or speak Portuguese, or um, be a contortionist, or something that required big, like physical, huge commitment. And I would do that for you know four months before shooting, and then I would shoot. <laughs> you know, you could just learn the violin. That's true. I could do that. But then I won't have the discipline because, you wouldn't have the discipline because it's I'd be all like, oh, this is work. hard. Yeah. I'm not doing this. Ugh, there's no reason to do this. I don't have to do this. <laughs> now there's a violin in my house and I just take it out. Just get rid of it. Because exactly. I, I we're such in an interesting time where, you know, film and, and television are kind of doing this. And so, you know, has anyone approached and be like, hey, maybe you should be on True Detective season three? You know, like it's like with some sort of mini television cinematic event. Yeah, I get that a little bit, and um, I would definitely do it if it was the right thing, if it was something that was different than what I'd already played before, sure. something that um, was a, 
like a crazy, wonderful stretch. That would be great. Um, I love directing TV. Um, I like serving the creator and serving the the writer. You know, um, it's different than directing a feature. Direct when you direct a feature, you really are the vision of the film. And yeah. in television, you're serving someone else. But I like that. Um, I like being able to go from you know a thriller. Um, something like House of Cards or something like Orange is the New Black. Yeah. It's really fun for me to go back and forth between two totally different mediums. I meant as a as an actor going on and yeah. doing like a mini event. I mean, because I know you've directed a bunch of... Yeah, I, know I, I, I would do it as an actor if I found the right thing, but I haven't really found the right thing. Uh, I, your first directing credit I saw was Tales from the Dark Side. Well, is that true? It's true, but it's really um, – it was a co-directing credit with okay. my good friend Bob Balaban who oh, yeah, of is course. in the DGA. Of course. And at the time, he wanted to direct this Tales from the Dark Side, but he couldn't because he was DGA. So he had to find some unsuspecting person who wasn't DGA <laughs> who would be a co-director with him. And he said, you know, it should be somebody who really wants to direct and who will be able to learn from the experience. So he called me up and said, do you want to co-direct with me? You'll be from the beginning to the end of the process, and you'll be in editing, and you'll be in casting, and you know you can do all that with me. And I did. Was but it fun? It's really his show. It, it, oh, it is his yeah, show. Yeah. Okay. Well, it is. You did get the. You did get credit for it. I did. And then years later, um, I brought him in to act in Little Ant Tate when I did my first movie as a director. You know, to sort of pay him back. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. That's that's really nice. Uh, did you? I know you wrote your. Uh, I know you wrote your thesis on Toni Morrison. Is that yes, correct? Did yes. you ever get a chance to be friends with her? I don't mean like Facebook friends. No, <laughs> like like real friends. <laughs> uh, I did interview her for the for the thesis, and um, it was amazing. It was an amazing experience. Were you nervous? House. I was so nervous. I got. I arrived. I had to drive to Nyack, and I was in Connecticut, and I had to drive to Nyack, and I was like, I think I arrived like two hours early. So I just, you know, parked my car outside on the river and, you know, waited to meet Tony. Now, that must have been a unique experience because as someone who was so good at inhabiting other situations and now all of a sudden you kind of have to be yourself as a student just talking to another human being as Jodie Foster and Tony Morrison as Tony Morrison. Uh, that must have felt challenging. It just felt great. I mean, it felt great. The years that I spent... Um, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of a head first person, um, meaning I'm not an emotions first person. I'm really a head first person. And I think I'm most comfortable when I'm processing things through my brain. Yeah. Um, so college was sort of exactly up my alley. And literary criticism, which is what I was doing, you know, was really that's kind of how I think. And did that inform – did any of that experience inform like how you work as a director or how you work as a performer? Like what were you able to extrapolate from that? Oh, yeah. I mean you know, everything that you do anyways between the ages of 18 and 21 is somehow going to haunt you in your life. You're going to see <laughs> – you're going to see all the shades of that come into your life. But um, you know, I learned to – to really I learned to read at college. I learned how to read a text and to look at it in a more meaningful way, to look at things deeper and to – uh, organize my thoughts so it, it, in the best way to communicate it to other people. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's the most amazing university and it was really a, a, an amazing – I just can't believe that I went there. It's so great. And throughout that whole – throughout that time and then everything that followed afterwards, I mean, being able to – because I, I read something that said it – sa it says – I looked at your Wikipedia page real fast and it says uh, Jodie Foster private life. Jodie basically says Jodie Foster doesn't really like talk about her private life because she was so <laughs> exposed as a child. And so she's very, very, very private. Mm -hmm. You feel – you you 
how how have you managed to maintain a level of privacy and and how does that get in the way when you just want to do the work but people want to talk about your clothes or your mm. personal life or other you know you've you, some weird things have happened around yeah. you so how do you process that yeah it's um you know you figure it out and um it's it's not my personality to be very public it's not my personality in the same way it's not really my pro- i mean I'm sure that if I hadn't grown up as an actor, as a child actor, I'm sure I wouldn't have been an actor. I can't imagine. I just don't – I'm not like – I don't want to dance on the table and go like, look at me, look at me or you know, do imitations. and It's just not my personality. Um, and it's not my personality to want the world to gaze at me and to um, tell them everything about me, uh, to, to have you – know, to, to allow strangers, total strangers – millions of strangers into my most personal thoughts. It's, right. not my, it's not my personality. And so you were able, are you, are you able to kind of have, I, I would assume you are, it seems like you are to have that piece of yourself that's just for you or the people closest to you. And then kind of knowing how to go into the mode that is like, Oh, this yeah. is sort of public Jody, but there's also private Jody. And that's, I, I think so. And I think you become for lack of a better word, kind of dissociative. You, you, you learn to just like a multiple personality person, you learn to, have a public per, per, a public person and a, and a private person, and you become incredibly compartmentalized. Oh wow! And so that's the you know that's the bad flip side of you know how to survive and be fairly well adjusted as a as a celebrity actor as a young person. I mean, I had to learn to dissociate myself. You know, I had to learn to have connections and then walk away. Um, and I had to learn to draw lines, to have boundaries about what was – what, how far I wanted people in my life. Um, and my mom was smart. She had been a publicist when she was young and for a junior publicist with people like Marilyn Monroe and, you know, and, and she worked at a very, uh, a very important firm. And she had seen those lessons. So she was careful. I mean she gave me all those, all those lessons. You know, she'd say, um, you know, fool's – Faces are found in public places. She would oh, say wow. to me, she'd be like, don't get your picture taken. There's no reason to have your picture taken. You have your picture taken for because you're promoting a movie. But there's no reason to have your picture taken for any other reason. You oh, don't wow. need to promote your life. You just promote your movie. Oh, and she God. was very clear about trying to create boundaries that would allow me to be a healthy person when I grew up. I mean, that was her goal was that I would be a healthy person psychologically. She really almost was preparing you for <laughs> what happens now. I mean, just you know, growing up now, I don't yeah. even know how you could tell someone that. Like, it wouldn't yeah. even process. What do you mean? So, just only kind of post on Instagram? No, never, never, yes. never. Yes, and some of that was fear. You know, I mean, some of that was some really healthy fear. And she gave me a whole bunch of fear about lots of things. And as you get older, you learn, like, oh wow, maybe I shouldn't be so fearful. You know, maybe I should, you know rebel against my mother now that I'm 55 years old. And, um, <laughs> but you always feel the same inside. You always feel yeah. like the same, like you always, I think there's a, you're, it's, it's somewhere between like 13 and 17. I feel like where your identity starts being formed, maybe it's around puberty. I don't know, but you always kind of feel like that person. Don't you think you still feel like that person? Yeah. Yeah. I think I do. I mean, I think I do. I feel like I feel like I used to be way smarter, though. I feel like I was, I, I'm the dumber version of myself. I'm no, the, that sounds like wisdom. <laughs> I'm, I oh, think no. people, when they get wise, they start to go, oh, I don't know everything. Yeah. I think it's dumber to go, like, I totally got this, you know? Yeah, I guess. I guess. Um, I just felt so much smarter when I was younger. Um, 
but my mom definitely prepared me. Um, and some of that were good tools and some of that were tools that I had to learn to get, get rid of. Um, I feel like the beaver, that's sort of the story of the beaver, um, right. it, you know, metaphorically is, or as an allegory where you, you, you put on this beaver puppet on your hand because it allows you to be free and to express yourself and to connect with people and to be the person that you want to be. And, um, you live with that for a long time. And, and then suddenly the beaver puppet is, you can't get it off your arm <laughs> and it's trying to kill you. <laughs> so you have to kill that. You have to, you have to get rid of it. I mean, you have to kill the thing that's been attached to you. That's allowed you to survive intact all these years. The reason you didn't kill yourself was because you had this thing attached to your arm and now you got to cut it off. Oh, wow. That's really interesting. Um, and it's painful. It is painful to have to suddenly go like, wow, I have to live differently. I have to look at things differently and I have to not use the same survival tools that I used before. I mean, you know, my mom, I always felt like my mom's like the, the safest answer is no. Right. So if anybody says, do you want to go out to dinner? You go, no. <laughs> do you want to, do you want to try something? No, that's okay. Do you want to like that? I was given that mantra of, you know, no is the safest answer. And, um, part of my adult life was learning to say yes a bit more, you know, learning to make a beer fool of myself and to make mistakes and learn how to trust. Like, how do you, you even yeah. really taught to trust people? people like you well you shouldn't trust people honestly. <laughs> <laughs> you definitely don't go that far don't go crazy okay, you know, some, some very revolutionary ideas i apologize i went well I, I, admittedly i was wrong i was wrong <laughs> everyone everyone's out to get you but it, particularly at that time you know especially especially in the 80s was such a it must have been such a crazy time for you with you yeah, know. the 80s was nuts. I mean, the 80s in Los Angeles was crazy and the 80s being in college was crazy and there was, you know, plenty to be afraid of. Um, the good news, you know, including, you know, the AIDS epidemic, by the way. Right. But um, you can't think of anything more fearful than that. Um, but the good news is, is they did, hadn't invented those big long lenses yet or <laughs> they had invented them but not everybody was buying them. Right. So they didn't have you, – you, you could – you could kind of organize your life so that you could explore and be free and feel like you were living in the world as a real person. Um, if I was a child, if I was a 19, 18 year old actor, you know, biggest actor in the world, you know, Jennifer Lawrence or whatever, I mean, my life would be very different now than it was when I was 18. Yeah. I mean, I'm not, I, I don't, I feel like that is a crazy thing to survive. Like, how do you survive that? Because it just, Everything's so much about um, getting clicks and traffic. It's like, oh, well, let's yeah. build this person up. Now let's tear them down. Yeah, yeah but won't that hurt their fit? Yeah, fuck it. Who cares? You know, yeah. like we're getting clicks. It doesn't matter. You know, I mean, how do we how do we pick up the pieces and kind of deal with what our culture is wreaking on our on our, our I don't mean the negative parts of our egos, but I mean like our ego, like ourselves, our perceptions of ourselves. Well, it's going to change our flora and fauna as a species. I mean, it already has. Uh, my kids' generations, they're just not so sensitive. You know, they're they're like, uh, why? Who cares if everybody sees my picture? I, uh, why do I care? Why right. do I care? I mean, what, am I Maasai? Are they going to steal my soul? Like, why is that <laughs> such a big deal to you? Um, they may not, this new generation just may not understand what the big deal is um, because they've, you know, they've, their evolution, the evolution has changed them a bit. And um, they don't know what the beauty of privacy was because they've never experienced it. Uh, are you solitary to the point where... Sometimes you even have to say, like, either in your relationship or to your kids, like, mm. I just need everyone to go away for a minute and I just need to be alone. Um, 
Yeah, and, I, and you, well, in some ways, yes. I mean, I have a problem. I have like a dichotomy problem, which is um, I need to communicate and I need to connect really badly, except I really need to be alone. <laughs> so I have that, you know, terrible push-pull. The old and, get away from me, I love you. <laughs> yes, get away from me, get away from me, I love you. Um, so I'm desperate to connect with people and to have people know me and to be known in some ways. But I also really value my, my solitary time because I think that's what's creative. Sure. I think, you know, that is the dual side of creativity is that you, you have to know yourself in order to figure out what you have to say. And it's, it's just not something anyone else can be inside that experience. You know, when I'm, when I'm, um, you know, lying in prospect park in a pool of fake blood at three in the morning, and somebody's going like, can you move a little more, more to the right, please? Or, you know, somebody's um, putting a fake gun in my hand or pretending to smack him across the face. I just can't explain that to other people. Sure. I really can't. It's just – it's an impossible emotional experience to explain to someone that I am inside my body and outside my body at the same time. That I can say like, what, you mean You mean like three inches to the right or four <laughs> inches to the right? Like I can do that and also be inside the moment. And in order to do that, I have to be completely and totally alone. Except I'm surrounded by 175 sure. people. And potentially those gamma rays or whatever a camera is will show every single pore of my face – to millions of people that feel changed and touched by the experience, as they should, because it's intimate. So it's just a weird dichotomy. It really is weird. It really because that is a lot of clutter in the immediate, where it's like, okay, I'm going to drown out all of the, you know, I'm going to drown out yeah. some uh, so the boom guy who yeah. has been up for 29 hours. <laughs> he looks tired. He's staring off. He's got this mic, you know, yeah. and just being able to to funnel all that out. Yeah, and it's kind of like playing in a symphony orchestra, you know, where um, you all have your instrument and you're all playing your own particular instrument and you're all playing together. You're playing one piece, one piece of text, and you're bringing your language to that. And you're inside the experience, but you're outside going like, that guy's off time. <laughs> you know, you should have come, brought that in on an eighth note instead of a quarter note. Or you, you have to be able to be inside the experience and outside the experience at the same time. It's kind of like an athlete magical feat. Sure. And um, we're all working together on a movie set, you know, with the technicians, with the DP, with the, you know, sound guys, with visual effects. I mean, we're all in it together and when we're, we're sewing all these seams and then we get to the end part of the process and then we erase all the seams and we go, here it is. And hopefully an audience experiences it the way they meet a person. Yeah. They meet a whole person that's got legs and arms and feet and teeth and all those things. They're not paying attention to the seams that it took to create the Frankenstein. Yeah. You know, they're really experiencing like meeting somebody for the first time. But so much – thought and imagination and and technique and weird little technical things went into creating that monster. Did you ever think about just quitting everything? I mean, because I understand when you're a kid and you get used to the junkets and everything, but then you're you're a kid. You're just a kid. But then you're an adult and then after, you know, the accused kind of made you like really part of pop culture, like really, really part of pop culture. And now you're an adult and people start prying into your personal life and they're asking about relationships and they want to know about your romantic life. And you're like, you know, that hasn't anything to do with anything. Like, was there any point where you go, maybe I don't want to do this anymore because I just don't want to have to – I don't want to ever have to be public about anything because I'm me and I'm personal. 
Well, I think you burn out on a lot of it. I mean, you also burn out on, you know, uh, being on location for if you do if you do two movies back to back, if you do two movies a year, and let's just say each one of those is four months on vaca- on location, and then you have two weeks of prep on each one of those, and then you have looping and dubbing, and then you have the junkets, so that's a month and a half of on a tour. And then there's the photo shoots. So that's, you know, if you put that together, that's your whole life. Yeah. So, you know, you burn out. If you don't burn out, there's something wrong with you. Um, so I burn out <laughs> periodically. I burn out <laughs> over and over again. And I, you know, snap my foot and say, I'm never doing this again. Um, but then I love making movies. You know, I love movies. Um, it's why I didn't end up going to grad school and why I didn't become a professor because – I just really love movies. I love movies so much that I could punch someone in the face when <laughs> when it's when it's like they messed it up or I just I love them in a way that's really passionate and I'm not sure I really like books and I I do love books but I don't think I I don't think I love thinking. Yeah. The way that I love films. Yeah. Yeah. But I just think you've done it. I think you've done a really good job at being able to kind of separate and go, nope, this is the work and it's about the work and let's just keep it focused on the work. And I feel like to a degree, I feel like the media has kind of respected that. Yeah. I think they kind of just – you somehow condition them to go, you know, Jody's a very private person, so let's not poke around too much and let's just focus on the work. Yeah, there has been a lot of respect and I'm really appreciative of that. I really do see that. But I also see that, it, you know, it came by being trained. I mean they were trained over and over again. They kept, you know – they kept getting smacked in the nose over and over again. It's like a dog that keeps getting smacked in the nose over and over again. Um, uh, you know, and I designed a different career. You know, I haven't had the, you know, I haven't had a pop star career. I didn't have a pop uh, actor career, really. And I was clear that I didn't want that. And, and I chose specifically so that I wouldn't have that life because I knew it wouldn't suit me and I wouldn't survive it. Yeah. So um, nobody's, you know, running down the street after me trying to rip my clothes off. I don't, you know, I'm not, I'm not Madonna or Tom Cruise or something. I think there's something to really kind of embracing. I think if you can kind of convince people like, yeah, I'm kind of boring, then they don't, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like they sort of leave you alone because they're like, well, there's not, there's not really a, there's yeah. not really a story here. No, that's true. Yeah. George Clooney does this really interesting thing where he, uh, he has like six of the same t-shirts <laughs> and he wears the exact same t-shirt every single day. And he's like, at some point, they're really going to get tired of taking my picture in the exact same T-shirt because they're going to get the same shot over and over and over and over again. He's almost upsettingly cool. Like, he is. To the degree where you're like, how do you have the looks and, and – but you're not a dick? Like how do you – how are you – just he'll. It, I've seen him, and just in conversation, he'll just t- he just talks to people like a regular guy. He's not, you know. There's no air about like I'm George Clooney. Like he's just a, he seems like a good guy. He is a good guy, and um and he, but he has his struggles too. I mean, if he didn't, he would be you know a cartoon character. I mean, sure. he, he's a real person, and he, you know, I'm sure at some point he loses his temper in traffic, or he, you know, he gets drunk and throws up like everyone else uh he he's a real person and um he has i think we all have what has allowed us to survive intact and in his case i would believe and i don't want to be presumptuous because i'm not him but i think that he really needs to have meaning in his life and that's what he's found with social activism and and politics and his ability to multitask you know george is everywhere george is you know, he's got a tequila company and he's in – he was in um, Syria last week and he's on the cover of this and he's 
I mean, I've never seen anybody do so many different things. <laughs> and I'm just amazed. I mean, I'm really in awe of him because he's able to kind of commit and delegate and then commit and delegate, commit and delegate so that he can just be a part of the whole world. And I feel like I'm like a weird little hamster that's just like treadmill, 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 treadmill. I can do one thing. I just do one thing and then I just keep getting for the pellet, 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 pellet. And I don't I, – I, I could never – accomplish as much as george accomplishes well he's i saw the movie you guys mm-hmm. uh, i have the i have the ipad back to you mm-hmm. uh and it's great it, it's like there's a there's an element of it that's real uh it, it's claustrophobic but just because every, i had no idea what the movie was about oh. when it, when i started watching it because i didn't i kind of just i like to be surprised uh and uh and it was really 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 fun and the guy who plays Kyle mm-hmm. is fantastic. He's so, I mean, everyone in the movie is great, but that Jack kid, O'Connell. oh, he's so great. Yeah. He's a, he's, if you, at some point you'll see him being interviewed. He has like the thickest Northern England accent you've ever heard. Yeah. I mean, he's quite the, you know, quite the British guy. But he's, he's, he's like New York guy in the movie. Yeah. He's great. Um, he was, it was just such a joy. I mean, so committed. I've, I've never actually met or seen an actor that's as committed as he is. It's exhausting just to watch him. <laughs> and um, he just gave everything to that part. Are you already now that now that this is done and you're just kind of wrapping the press on this? Are you already on to something else? Or are you taking a break for a while? No, I've got a month of press on this um, ahead of me. Oh, fun! Uh, and then, yeah, then I guess I'll move on to other things. But it's been a long process, so I'm really excited about not doing anything for a while. Oh, I'm trying to figure out. You know, in most movies, you can sort of figure out like what's the junket question going to be? Like, what's <laughs> the one you're going to have to answer over and over and over? What's again? it like working with Julia Roberts and George Clooney? They reunite them in their movie. Was that fun? You know, the truth is, is it is really fun. And um, they are great together. They have um, this weird, amazing chemistry. In, in fact, while we were shooting, they were virtually never in the same room. Um, only the first two minutes of the movie and in the last two minutes of the movie. And you, you can almost – you just feel them connecting just through the through the wires, you know. Yeah. Um, and it was wonderful being on set with Julia Robertson. And she's fun and funny and – does her homework and comes in prepared and just everybody loves her and um it's it's strange though you go to the monitor and you look at her and then suddenly go oh, that's Julie Roberts <laughs> and you forget I forget who she is and then I go look at her on a box and I'm like oh my god that's Julie Roberts <laughs> Julie Roberts is in my movie oh my gosh I can't believe it I'm sure, she, I'm sure she does that every day I'm sure every day she just like walks by the mirror and it's like oh Julie Roberts. Oh, my God. oh wait, Julie that's Roberts. me. That's me. I mean, that must be. You know, yeah. I mean, it, it's it's such a the, the idea that um, this business attra- you know can really fuck with your brain a lot, mm. but it kind of you know forces you to be so transient in a weird sort of way. Like, I, it, I'm always interested to find out how anyone has any semblance of any kind of normal anything, particularly if you're if you're on that le- level. I just yeah. don't. I just don't know. Yeah, and the, the the questions of celebrity are of interest to me. I mean, uh, Money Monster, obviously, that all comes to play. Absolutely, he plays uh, you know a joke of a financial news host. He's kind of like a Jim Cramer type of a guy. He's like a Jim Cramer type, um, although he's a little smoother and a little more George. Yeah. Uh, but he's just unconscious and he's lost in his own life. He has this tremendous ego and yet he feels horrible about himself. And it's that weird combination of, you know, being sort of pumped up on, you know, the public's steroids in some ways to how they think about you and how you see yourself in the mirror and then realizing that you're just, a, 
you know, you know nothing and you're just a shell of a person. Um, and he has to face that in this sort of spiritual crisis that happens during this hostage taking. Who did you, uh, who do you empathize, who do you empathize with most in the movie? Do you have one character? I think I, you know, every character is me. That's how it works where you're always saying, who would I be? And then you sort of shape the character. Um, so there's a part of me, of course, that feels like George's character, Lee Gates, the, the, you know, celebrity talk show host in some ways, who's doesn't really understand who he is, doesn't know who he is anymore, has lost himself, and who who's who just feels like a failure. Um, and the guy who's just filled with rage because he did everything right. That's Kyle, that played by Jack O'Connell. He did everything right. He did what he was supposed to do. He squirreled away money. He he worked hard at his job, and um, he did what the guy told him to do, and he lost everything. And he's mad. I, mean, <laughs> I get that too. I mean, there's a part of me that feels like you know has understands the rage of being like, but I did everything right. What do you mean you stole all my money? You know, yeah, that's that's. Hard. I followed the list. I followed the I list. Followed the list. What happened? Um, and then there's you know there's Julia Roberts' character who is the incredibly strong woman who's the Jiminy Cricket because um, she is in his ear. He's the Jiminy Cricket to this guy who she loves even though he's not self-knowledgeable. And um, she multitasks in order to produce his survival. Um, she's better than the police. She's smarter than anyone in the movie. Yeah. And she's able to pull all of that off and still remain calm for him, you know. Um, and I get that too. You know, I feel like all three of those characters. There's a bad guy too and sometimes, you know, his point of view in the film is – Everybody was – nobody was complaining when we were making you money. Right. You know, everybody was gobbling up as many stocks as they could and they were looking a blind eye and looking away. Um, but the second we started losing money, then people start paying attention. But if you really want to embrace what capitalism is and you want to be competitive with China and Russia, you got to start looking for margins any way you can. Yeah, because you, you, as, as an audience member, you flip-flop. The reason I asked you who you're empathetic to because it's like, oh, now I feel bad for Cl- – oh, now I feel bad for the kid. Yeah. Now I feel bad for – now I feel bad for the woman who works for the guy. Mm-hmm. It's like you, you – you, there's a lot of flip-flopping with who you – because everyone kind of presents a case for why they sort of have it r- rough. Right. I think that's all my movies. I think that's true of all my movies where I'm always and – I, and I do a lot of uh, ensemble films you know, where – you can relate to every single one of the characters. Home for the Holidays is a good example where, you know, you're faced with a family and you have the one who stayed home and who, you know, does everything for the parents, which, of course, the parents don't appreciate because she's the one that stayed home. (laughs) Who cares about her? And all the parents really care about is each other because, you know, they've been having this same dysfunctional relationship forever where um, he – never talks to the children and doesn't answer the phone because he'd rather be working on his vacuum cleaner. Right. You know, there's all these bits of dysfunction all interlace in a tapestry. And I see everyone's side. I think that's what a director does. Oh, that's really, that's great. I mean, it, it, I absolutely think people should go see Money Monster. Uh, It was not, I just, I didn't know what to expect. The posters are very striking. The billboards are very striking. But I just didn't, you know, when I immediately kind of got like, oh, okay, I see what the movie is about. And it is very, it follows the story all the way through to the end. Yeah. I mean, it is a fast-paced thriller. And it's super, super fast-paced because it does reflect the pace of technology. Um, 
and um, it's exciting, intense, and all those things. Um, but I think the thing that people don't expect is that it's a really amazing character piece that's um, more like a play. Yeah, uh, it's a play between three people in some ways, three people that are engaged in this weird dynamic. Um, and even though the story plays out all across the globe on every screen in the world simultaneously. Um, some of it is really just about the tiny details of shame that these characters carry carry with this, carry with each other. Yeah, and and also everyone kind of has a discovery of self awareness. Mm-hmm. Everyone kind of has to have that moment, and there you know, there's the Kyle has it. There's a particular moment in the movie where he gets called out by someone, and he kind of has that like, oh shit, you know, like everyone kind of has that moment of they think they're doing the right thing, and then they realize, oh wait, I. Yeah. I haven't really been paying attention. Yeah. I mean, aside from the fact that it's it really is a genre movie and it does clip along and it's about exciting things. Um, for me, the movie's really about failure and about men, specifically men's relationship to failure and um, self-hatred and uh, <laughs> and the failure especially that they feel uh, reflected in the eyes of these strong women. Sure. Yeah. Lives. I mean, it is – you know, failure is a little tied to our ego uh, <laughs> sometimes, a lot of the time. But it is kind of – I think it is good to – Do you think? but it doesn't mean everything. Failure doesn't mean everything. I feel like we take it hard sometimes like, oh, everything's fucking ruined and I can't remember. But it doesn't really mean everything or do you think it does? No, I don't think it does. And I, But I think we live in fear of it. I think we don't know who we are unless we're winning. And um, that's certainly a part of modern culture. Modern culture. Um, it's certainly a part of the financial world. You know, I'm – you know, what is the financial world? The financial world is telling you you are valuable because you own such and such stock. Sure. Most of it's on paper. You know, you're not going to eat more turkey because you just have 20,000 more shares of Apple computers. I mean, a lot of it is really just about the idea of value. It's not really value in itself. And, um, you know, more money, more value, more stocks, that must mean I'm better. Does that mean I'm better? And if I if I lose if I lose at this poker game, does that mean that I'm worse? It's a weird it's a it's a value machine that's off kilter. As we're wrapping up, where do you place value? Where do you think we should place value? Um, I'm all for experiences. Um, I feel like once you hit forty, nobody should give you any presents that aren't experiences. They should give you like food. They should give you you know a, a day in the pool. They should give you sand in your toes or something. You know, you should have an experience because what do you want with all that crap? Yeah. You're just going to have to sell it at a garage sale. You know, ironically, I'm looking behind you. (laughs) Oh, that's right. A wall of crap. I know. But (laughs) to be fair... That is a that is an original Muppet bo- Muppet Show lunchbox. Yes. So I, you probably meant everything but like that, right? No, no. I mean, you know, they're totems, <laughs> but they're totems of memory. Sure, sure. I mean, they're totems of memory. That's what art is too. Yeah. I mean, you have you hold something in your hand, and you were like, when I was five, my dad gave this to me, or remember that cool concert that I was at, where we were all had our arms around linked around each other, and we fell all over each other. I mean, you want to hold on to these things so you can recreate those memories. Sure. Um, and you know, that's why people buy Renaissance paintings because, you know, Da Vinci painted it. And when he painted it, he used this oil. It's the story, the story behind it, the story that you can retell and say, see this painting, this is what Leonardo was doing 
And that's why I bought this painting. <laughs> and the real value is really the experience. Well, I, I honestly can't thank you enough for thank coming you. in. And, and I was a little nervous at first. I'm like, well, I've never seen Jodie Foster talk for longer than a few minutes. So oh, I don't really? know if she's going to. It was funny. I was like, when you walked in, I was like, wait, did it start? I guess it started. <laughs> Oops. I guess it started. Well, you know, I never want people to sort of, um, especially if you're, because this isn't really. I'm not a journalist, and this, this is, these are really just like coffee chats. Like if yeah. I met you and like let's go to coffee and just talk, and so I feel like if you go welcome to the show, they, that makes people immediately go, "This is an official thing," and my oh, defenses yeah. are up, and I'm not. I you know, so I feel like it's better just to have an experience. Like just let's just talk right. like people. Let's be human and talk like people, and not have it be you know a clipboard. And then and then what you know? Yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you, and I I don't think. Uh, well, I do a lot of interviews, right? Because you do junk. I mean, it's part of my job is I sure. do a lot of interviews. And um, I think that we've kind of lost the dialogue thing. And people don't know how to have a dialogue anymore. They don't know how to go back and forth. And well, because everything is all about how many – we need to get as many people to see this thing in a moment as possible. So how right. do we do that? We do that with clipping and sound bites and yeah, sound fear-mongering bites. and, and, and uh, tabloid exploitation and you know creating yeah. false stories to get attention. Yeah, sound bites. Sound bites are interesting because I, I, you know, I, I can sometimes – because I just think – I'll think of really bad analogies and then if I say them, then somebody will put them in print and then it haunts me for the rest of my life. <laughs> so I've tr- learned to try to calm down on saying I, – I once said something like, uh, if I see a dead bird on the street, I just I, – I don't know. I don't know about you. I just want to kick it aside. <laughs> I don't know. I just don't – I just I Jody don't Foster hates birds. <laughs> I don't want to hug it. I don't want to like go down and go like, how are you feeling? I just want to like – I just want to kick it aside. And I think – I think that that's up there with the stupidest thing that I've ever said in my entire <laughs> life. And there is no way that I will ever be able to go on an IMDb page, on any page of my life, and not see. Whenever I see a dead bird, I just want to kick it. I mean, literally, I must see that. If I ever plugged into the internet, that is all I would see. It's the dumbest thing anyone could see. Obviously, I was trying to make a point. Yes. Um, but in this... That all birds te- should be te- killed. Did techno- I miss that? Technology age. Oh, okay. The, I think the, I missed the, the point on it's that. It's definitely the, the point was not had. Well, no wonder you would be... You kind of have to be introverted and protective because everything you say gets put under a microscope. But yeah. But I think we understand that that was just an analogy. It was just an analogy. On behalf People- of the world and the internet, <laughs> I absolve you of your bird <laughs> comments. You may fly and be free, unlike that bird who is dead. Uh, <laughs> but thank you so much for being here. Thank it was you. An absolute was joy. Fun. And you know, maybe uh, I I don't know if we'll ever get to meet again, but I'll, I'll just yeah. assume that we're pals, and I'm I'll send you a poem for Christmas. I'll send That's you a non gift uh, gift for Christmas. I think this. once you've done one of these, I don't think you'll ever want to have me back. Are you kidding? I think that will be it. It'll be just like that's enough already. This was no, long. no, 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 no. I just I I feel like I mean I've already dominated a, a, an hour and a half of your time, and so but honestly. If you have another thing, if you want to, you absolutely can come back and promote. Or if you, or if you said, you know, that Chris Hardwick's guy, he's not such a bad egg. <laughs> I think I'm just gonna, I'm gonna have him over for coffee for 15 minutes. And I'm gonna kick him out. I, I would love to talk because I. I am, I am fascinated by a lot of the same things that are of interest to you just in terms of celebrity and culture and where are we going. And that's a lot of what the undertone of this whole podcast experience in 800 mm-hmm. episodes is what's human about what we're doing and how do you find humanity in, in a relatively cold and inhuman 
way that we communicate now, which is via devices and interfacing with machines. And so anytime. Yeah, and I don't trust it. I'm not good with machines. I mean, I do them, but I'm never going to be the guy you go, oh, we're doing the next installation of Star Wars. Let's call Jody to direct it. I mean, that's <laughs> not me. The only thing that I trust is my human connection. Sure. It's like, so I, I know for a fact that if I'm operating on a different level, that I will fail miserably. So I don't make... I don't make movies about Martians unless they're a Martian family that are having <laughs> crises. <laughs> um, I know better, I think, because I know what I trust. And then also maybe at some point you might say, Chris, I'm going to teach you how to chop wood. Yeah. Because I know that you don't, and I know that I would not survive in an apocalypse. So Anytime. I would appreciate that. Thank you, Jody Foster. My pleasure. Uh, enjoy your burrito, everyone. Wow. That was fantastic. Oh, wow. thank you. That's a start. I was like, wait, are we started? Do we start? Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Good for you. Now leaving Nerdist.com. Enjoy your burrito. Welcome to Pura, the most pristine, safe, climate-stable city on Earth. A haven amidst the wreckage. Here... You're safe from heat domes, superstorms, water bandits in the outer lands. There's no crime in Pura, no murder, no suicide. And best of all, there's no cost to join us. In Pura, we promise to keep you safe. They killed her! You took everything! In a world that doesn't feel so safe anymore, we're waiting for you. Here, in Pura. The Last City is a new scripted audio drama from Wondery. Enjoy The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City right now ad-free on Wondery Plus. Get started with your free trial at wondery.com slash plus.